This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 28, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. When you give away your data to a big or a small tech firm, you may be giving away more than you know. Do data breaches change company or consumer behavior? Lindsay Barrett is a staff attorney and teaching fellow at the Georgetown University Law Center, Institute for Public Representation, Communications, and Technology Clinic. We spoke earlier this month about privacy policies and what online privacy should look like in the future. When we sign up for some sort of website or an email address or to, to make use of some sort of social media platform, we all sign these or click on these various uh, disclosures. This is how we're going to use your information. Here are the protections that you have. Nobody reads them. Everybody clicks right through. And uh, it, frankly, it's it's not quite a contract of adhesion because you're 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 deciding I'm going to use this service. Uh, but you know. It seems like a problem that people in general aren't really cognizant of what they're giving away or how it's being used. Yeah, I'd say it's absolutely a problem. So we're talking about a system where realistically it's just not worth – even if you were able to take the time to read every privacy policy that came in front of you, even if that privacy policy disclosed all the risks you need to know, even if it was put in language that was – clear and easy to understand, it's simply not worth your time in terms of how many privacy policies we encounter each day. Um, There's a fabulous paper by um, Alicia McDonald and Lori Craner um, at Carnegie Mellon, and they crunch the numbers, and it's something like, what, 200 hours? No. Um, Anyway, I think 200 hours a year that you would spend reading every privacy policy that comes in front of you. And that's just not a manageable way to expect people to evaluate the products that they use in their everyday lives, especially when, at the end of the day, they usually don't have that much choice in what they're what they're actually uh, using. So if I have a problem with Google's collection practices with Gmail, you know, it's easy to say, oh, well, just don't use that. But I, I work at Georgetown and Georgetown uses uh, Gmail as its, as its you know, georgetown.edu uh, system. So if I, you know, I'm not sure if I would even be able to do that uh, with my job. So when we talk about kind of the how onerous it is to kind of deal with all of these decisions in our day-to-day lives, we have to realize that it's not a question of how much people care or, you know, are people just being too haphazard and, you know, clicking agree to everything? It's, you know, what is actually reasonable to expect of people? Is there any uh, technological or uh, is there an opening, I guess, for some sort of service that that catalogs all of these different privacy policies and lets you know uh, clearly uh, this is the kind of data collection that these firms use. This is the kind of data collection that these firms use. I know that that Apple is reputed to be a much much stronger when it comes to uh, data privacy practices, but I don't really know that that's true. Um, I think there 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 are a number of projects that are trying to use kind of uh, to focus on how can we make user experience better so that. Either we can streamline the decision-making process as as it relates to, 
using um, various kinds of technology or that will simply uh, do it for you. So I, a paper that I wrote last year um, published in the uh, Santa Clara High Tech uh, Law Review is actually talks about that and kind of the different tools that um, computer scientists and privacy researchers have worked on to figure out, okay, we know that there are these cognitive phenomena and just structural difficulties that make it all, all but impossible for people to make meaningful privacy decisions. How can we, say, automate uh, opting in or opting out of certain disclosures? How can we make uh, privacy policies more readable? And there there are some of those endeavors going on. Um, Carnegie Mellon has the oh I'm going to forget. no the usable privacy po um, project and they do great work. Um, there's Polysis, um, which is a in part a browser extension and um, repository of privacy policies. But at the end of the day, I mean, just tech harder is not going to be a solution to the privacy problems that we're facing. We need a baseline consensus and actual legal implementation of what what uh, collection and use practices just shouldn't be allowed because it it can't just be up to people who are who are living their lives who are you know trying to get kids off to school who are trying to pay off loans do whatever it is to figure out how to find find some tool that will make their privacy <laughs> excuse me that will make their privacy decisions uh, some manner of meaningful as opposed to rote. Yeah, I, I had heard this phrase long ago is that that we all sold our privacy a long time ago, essentially to uh, tech firms, and we got a very good deal. And th that has <laughs> always that has always struck me as hopelessly naive. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and it also, again, it's I, I like the environmental analogies that some people have made between kind of focusing on individual responsibility as opposed to collective action. So, yeah, it's great if you recycle, but that's in, you know, bicycling to work isn't going to really have any impact on your on your neighborhood air quality if if the neighborhood factory keeps polluting and, you know, if companies keep dumping pollutants in the ocean, etc. So, privacy is pretty similar in that yeah, it's important to kind of take stock of what's important to you and, uh, you know, evaluate risks to the extent that you're able, all of, you know, don't reuse passwords, all of that. But we can't talk about privacy as being a problem of individual failure when it's a problem of structural incentives that have led companies to exploit people. It would seem a simple solution, at least to me, for uh, these companies to offer uh, the opportunity for people to have their uh, data not be presented with any kind of link to their actual human identity. Is is there a reason why they don't do that? Is is it purely because they're these are you know massive companies that have a a profit motive, and they in order for them to sell you things, they need to know who you are. So I think it's a combination of a lot of things. So one, it, the profit incentive is definitely a big part of it, and. I mean, there's also considering, you know, in terms of advertising, the company doesn't need to know uh, where you live in order to target you or to send you ads for whatever, for 
a dating service for footballs for bottled water, they can say, oh, okay, this is somebody who's browsing on the uh, hiking site. They probably will buy a campfire stove, whatever it is. So I think we need to kind of consider what information is is needed as opposed to what information companies would like to have. And in our current regulatory ecosystem, there's no reason for them not to collect. So that's probably the bigger issue in that there really aren't any, there aren't sufficient um, curbs on data collection or reasons why companies would limit um, their uses because enforcement is so is so rare that, quite frankly, it's worth the risk. Are data breaches any kind of a corrective to companies that collect all manner of data on Americans, or I should say anyone on the planet who uses these services? I mean, I would hope, but I, I don't think it has been much of one. And I, I also, you know, when when we talk about kind of long-term solutions and correctives and things working out in the end, we also want to think about the harms that happen in the meantime. So, you know, yeah, one would hope that a company that suffers a big data breach, you know, whether or not an enforcement ag- agency comes knocking on their door, takes stock and says, wow, we really should have been using this protocol or not letting the employees do X, Y, Z. Uh, but in in that span of time, whatever information has been breached has already been breached and the harm to the people to whom that information belong has already been done. So I think it's it's important when we talk about kind of long-term solutions and, you know, f- fixing fixing everything via enforcement. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for for more enforcement, is that we also want to create an eco- ecosystem where companies have fewer incentives to have terrible security protocols or to exploit user data because even if the enforcement does come knocking on those companies' doors, people get hurt in the meantime. Yeah, and is there has there been much in the way of uh, civil action uh, where customers, I should say customers' users, have recovered any uh, any value? Um. Well, one of the difficulties is actually getting into court and the the narrowness that um, courts have taken to defining informational injury and that the FTC has has as well. But again, if you're if we're looking at litigation as the as a solution, say you know something happens like your your uh, your health data is breached, your social security number, your banking information, whatever it is, um, your pictures, you know that's already out there. So litigation is one expensive to, you know, time, uh, costly in terms of time. Um, three, it, you know, you may not even be able to get into court at all. So as kind of a backstop against privacy violations, it's not that effective. What do you recommend? So I'm somebody who, let's say, let's say cares a great deal about his, his privacy and yet feels like a uh, the the woman who wrote the the piece detailing her troubles trying to extricate herself oh, from yeah. uh, uh, the, massive, the, the massive the uh, massive tech firms. Yeah. Um, what do you recommend? Should should I just be willing to pay uh, providers of various services and just say, look, I'm I'm going to pay because these guys have a have a better policy? Is it that simple? No, just throw your phone into the sea. No, but I I mean, I I wish that that well, I, having a solution where 
um, even just telling people, I know it sucks, but pay for X, Y, Z. That's not an adequate solution because it automatically says privacy is only for people who can afford to pay for it. Um, I wish I had less. Uh, I wish I had more productive advice than use a password manager um, and make sure that your elected representatives are where you think they should be on this issue and try to have an understanding of kind of what what your role can be to motivate them on that. Because in terms of what individuals can do to prevent themselves from being, from, you know, having their data stolen or misused, it's, there isn't a lot that you can do. And that's uh, frustrating and something that needs to be corrected. There was a, a note, and of course, we're speaking on the occasion of uh, the conference at the Cato Institute, uh, who's afraid of big tech. Um, but it uh, one of the most notable things is that any kind of regulatory effort that Congress may wish to impose uh, almost uh, just by the nature of regulation is the kind of regulation that big tech firms will be most able to comply with. And so that may drive a little bit of the development of that regulation uh, that big tech firms want to make sure that they're the ones who are advantaged by almost any regulatory change. Uh, what what do you see uh, as the as, – is there a way out of that either? I think that's a fair concern. Um, but where – what we should try to avoid is that argument taken to its logical extension says, well, you know – Every every regulation is going to entrench the behemoths, so we shouldn't have regulation. And I don't think that that's a satisfying solution. Regulation can ha can be tailored to be aware of the differential impact on the different size of businesses, and small businesses can violate your privacy too. So you know we have we're talking about the resources that big companies have for compliance and certainly for lobbying, um, and it's. It's un it's unfortunate that uh, by virtue of having less of of that expertise, small businesses are also putting their are putting their customers and their users at risk um, by virtue of the fact that they or that they don't have necessarily have access to good advice or are really thinking about kind of oh okay what are what are the legal uh, problems and you know the normative implications for our users when, um, you know, they're really thinking about how to secure the next round of funding or whatever it is. And at the end of the day, we do need to, we should absolutely be, be conscientious about how uh, laws can entrench um, the, the biggest companies who are most able to deal with it. But at the same time, you know, a, a privacy law is supposed to secure more privacy for people and uh, small businesses can violate your privacy as well. Lindsay Barrett is a staff attorney and teaching fellow at the Georgetown University Law Center Institute for Public Representation, Communications, and Technology Clinic. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Who's Afraid of Big Tech conference. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 